On the phone line with us today is a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges, James Carafano. He's vice president for the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, James, it's wonderful to have you on with us today. It's good to be with you. We're hearing a lot lately about North Korea in the news, and um, I'm of the age where my dad is a Korean War vet, and so certainly uh, North Korea was heavy on his mind uh, when he was a lot younger. And uh, so here we go again. Uh, we got something heating up, or so it seems. I, I don't know how to read it with North Korea. So I'm wondering if you can uh, help us think about this a little bit today. You bet. And, and, and actually, it's always kind of been a, a special thing for me. My my dad was a Korean War vet. He had 18 months of combat time in Korea, probably walked from one end of the country to the other kind of twice. And uh, my my uh, my first assignment in the Army after I was uh, commissioned was in in Korea. Oh my! So, uh, you know, on the one hand, it is kind of same old, same old. So, really, for and now we're in our third generation of of North Korean leader, which has used aggression and belligerence as kind of an instrument of foreign policy. So, essentially, what they do is they they do very threatening acts, and that's to either get concessions or attention from um, the rest of the world. And uh, so, that's that's what we're seeing here. We're not seeing any escalation towards an armed conflict. We're seeing kind of typical um, North Korean behavior. But what's changed is, and this is crucial, is the potential danger and, and threat that North Korea poses is growing and has grown significantly. And there's always a danger, even back in the day when I was in Korea, that you know, nobody thought the North Koreans could fight a long war, but they, they knew on the first day, because they have a massive artillery and missile force essentially buried in the mountains that's already with ammunition and the crew's already there, that, that before anybody could do anything, without you could really stop them, that they could attack Seoul. And really, the, the largest concentration of the, of the population, most of the largest section of the industrial base, uh, killing tens of thousands and maybe displaced hundreds and thousands of people. So it would be devastating, I mean, for South Korea, even just a day of war. And and then, of course, if there was a conflict, the North Korean military in the country would collapse fairly quickly, and you would have the largest humanitarian crisis that we've we've had in our memory. So right. the, the war is literally almost un, unthinkable. But the the problem, why these, these cycles of, of tension become more concerning is, is as North Korea continues to develop its nuclear weapons program, they have longer-range missiles, they have more capable missiles, they have more of them, and 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 we debate this back and forth between the experts of whether they already have the ability to put a nuclear weapon on top of a missile and shoot it. And, of course, if you're firing a nuclear weapon, even a small nuclear weapon, and even one with limited range that's not terribly accurate, um, the strategic threat of that's pretty serious. And, we already have a strategic threat against Japan and South Korea. Um, they have missiles that could actually range the United States, where they could put a nuclear warhead on that, we debate. And, of course, they're, they're developing a submarine force, which would also be nuclear-capable, probably not able to reach the United States, but certainly a regional threat. Yeah, and uh, we have certainly a close relationship with South Korea, having uh, fought that war back in the night. When, what what was the time frame of the Korean War? The 1950s. Yeah. So it was it was it was really in many ways the outbreak of the Cold War. A lot of people thought that uh 
we weren't really what to sure about to make about the Russians, but everybody, the Korean War really brought the Cold War home to Main Street. People for the first time right. really thought that there was a World War II and there could be a World War III. So it was a really, really scary period uh, um, for America. And it it, it kind of killed you know Truman's chances of getting right. He could have run for president again, but um, the country was so upset after the, at the outbreak of the Korean War that he didn't see that as feasible. And really propelled uh, Dwight Eisenhower into the White House and really started us on the path to uh, containment and, and, and the Cold War that really lasted till the end of the 1980s. So South Korea and Japan are important to us for two reasons. One is, of course, um, a war in Northeast Asia, nuclear or non-nuclear, whatever, would be very troubling, very destabilizing, very, very bad for American interests on its own. So one of our goals is there not to be a war in that part of the world. Sure. The the second thing is 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 in many ways South Korea and Japan are America's anchor into Asia that makes us an Asian power uh, economically, politically, militarily, much in the way that Britain has always been America's kind of anchor in Western Europe. So they are among the two most important allies that the United States has in Asia. I would say you know Japan, South Korea, and then really Australia and our our burgeoning relationship with India are really kind of the key strategic relationships. So, you know, people fixate on the nuclear weapon thing, but what's what's the underlying goal? Um, the underlying goal is twofold. One is we don't want a war in that part of the world. And two is a strong and resilient alliance with Japan and South Korea. Yes, yes. And I'm just sitting here scribbling on my paper. Uh, South Korea and Japan, I'm thinking in terms of cars, and uh, yeah, I know. I like you know we we'd like to buy uh, American cars, but oftentimes they're just not as good as the Japanese car. And and the South Korea now has Hyundai, and uh, there's a lot of their cars on American soil. Well, they build cars, they build ships. I mean, they're uh, they're both. Um, South Korea has gone from being a very poor country. I mean, when I was there, literally, if you went outside of Seoul. This is not meant to be pejorative, but if you went outside of Seoul, you were literally back in the Stone Age. I mean, right. you were in villages that, that didn't have running water. South Korea is one of the most modern and advanced economies in Asia today. It's a strong democracy. Um, it's an important uh, uh, ally to the United States, and, and uh, as is Japan. So their safety and security are important to us. And, and, of course, when we talk about North Korea and the North Korean threat, it's not just North Korea. It also complicates our relationship with China and, of course, the U.S. stabilizing that relationship with the United States and China, you know, keeping that in check is uh, is also key to, you know, keeping peace and stability in, in that part of the world. Yeah, one of the things that's frustrating uh, for just a normal guy on the streets trying to keep up with a little bit of news is trying to be able to discern from all the media hype um, because, they, you know, they want to sell, sell stories – um, versus the the real facts on the ground, and and for North Korea, how do you where how do you get uh, like raw raw facts or just news stories without a lot of spin? Well, it's, it is very difficult. First of all, you know, North Korea is a very closed society, so it's very hard to know what's going on there. I'm, I'm blessed in the fact that I I probably have working for me one of the best analysts in the world. His name's Bruce uh, Klinger, who had over 20-year career in the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, almost all of it exclusively focused on Northeast Asia, and he's been with me for over a, um, a decade. That's great. And he probably met, and he probably meets with more North Korean officials than the U.S. government. 
Mm. So he um, he's extremely well known in North Korea. They re- they read all his papers. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, he's constantly in the region. So I actually have a I'm fortunate that I have an analyst on staff that knows this really well. But you're right that the news the media is very unhelpful. For example, there's a lot in the press about well we're we're sending aircraft carriers and we're sending bombers there and people think we're heading to World War III. Those military deployments are primarily there to signal South Korea and Japan that the new administration is a, a a confident and dependable ally. Okay. It's not about threatening North Korea. It's about reassuring South Korea. That's helpful. Yeah. Uh, these these carriers have to be someplace. They might as well put them there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you're, uh, you're interested in national security. Um, uh, we don't know how far along uh, North Korea is in uh, having a, a nuclear weapon on a... ICBM, but um, they certainly sound like they want to achieve that. Um, but what, what's with this guy making threats? Uh, and didn't he th- even threaten the United States and and wanting to do a nuclear attack? Words to he, that effect. He did. I, look, I mean, we have to get past the point. Well, he's an immature leader. He doesn't know what he's doing. Right. He's crazy. None of that's true. Uh, he's been in power for a number of years now, and and really the foreign policy that he's using is consistent with the foreign policy of, of previous generations. Uh, by being belligerent, they get the world's attention. And and the other thing is, is look, by being a nuclear power, and which this is why they're never going to voluntarily give this stuff up, is they know at the end of the day nobody's going to attack them, nobody's going to mess with them. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't you don't go to war with other nuclear powers. This is what you know, right. India and Pakistan very, very quickly recovered. So it's all about sustaining and keeping the regime in power. That's that's what that strategy is is all about. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you before I forget, <laughs> and that is um, uh, for our our own safety here in in the States, we, we certainly have the strong interest over there in, in, in Northeast Asia, but um, to protecting our homeland Certainly, North Korea is one thing that's on our our concern radar screen. I want to say, but um, how about uh, the Islamic attacks that that occur? It seems like they've occurred more frequently in the past eight years or so. Do you have any insights on that and how to prevent those? Sure. So one of the things that we do at Heritage, and it's online, so anybody can call up the data if they want. Is we have we have a timeline, it's a database that lists every Islamist-related terror plot aimed at the United States since 9-11. So that's successful and unsuccessful. Right? And by our count, there have been over 90, something like 94 or so plots, um, which I think surprised, would surprise a lot of people if there's been that many. There's been a significant increase uh, over time, in the, and it really started to pick up in 2010. And it's not meant as a partisan comment, but... The reality is, is we adapted a, a different strategy for combating terrorism in 2010, and that both allowed space for ISIS to kind of grow and become a global force, but it's also allowed al-Qaeda to kind of creep back into the picture, and al-Qaeda today is actually a, has more adherence, uh, more geographical coverage than it did on September 10, 2001. So it's very ironic that we were actually on the a verge of crushing and, and disbanding these terrorist global mm. Islamist terrorist networks in about 2008 and and uh, we kind of took our foot off the sure foot off the pedal and and they've and they've 
significantly rebounded. So a lot of the threat we're seeing currently in the United States is commonly called homegrown, or though even this homegrown terrorism has many links to people overseas, uh, but it's basically people are already here. Um, that's a, I th- to, I'll say it's a manageable problem, but I mean, if you add every person that's been convicted of being involved in a terrorist plot or every person who was convicted of material support, which is a crime associated with terrorism, like recruiting people to be a foreign fighter or sending money to ISIS or something like that, that's a that's a total population of probably less than 2,000. Mm-hmm. We're a population of like 320 million plus people. Yeah. Right? So it's a tiny, tiny thing. But, but it is something you have to be on 24-7, 365. And so, you know, part of the answer to that, and our new Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, John Kelly, gave a speech on this yesterday, which I think was exactly spot on, is, you know, we need to, we need to take the mission seriously. We need to, you know, kind of not worry about political correctness. You know, we're going to respect people's constitutional rights and all that, but we need to, we need to go out and do good counterterrorism, good law enforcement, intelligence sharing, proactively being going out and looking for bad guys and stopping them before they hurt people. There's also an international dimension to that. I mean, there were thousands of, tens of thousands of foreign fighters that flowed into Iraq and Syria to support ISIS. As ISIS loses all its territorial control, those foreign fighters are going to go somewhere, and they're going to outflow, and then and they could, because we've actually seen them do this, either as refugees or as visa travelers or something else, try to get to other countries to do terrorist attacks. That's a real possibility. And that was actually the, the um, impulse behind the executive order that the administration issued on restricting travel from several Middle East countries. It wasn't about the threat we're facing now. It's about the emergent threat, the future threat, which is literally you know thousands and thousands of foreign fighters that could be trying to continue ISIS's war by by getting to the West, either the United States or Europe, and organizing and launching terrorist attacks. Yeah. I wonder if we um, we underestimate um, the resolve of these people. It, you know, first we were talking about North Korea, and they're kind of like there in North Korea. I don't, right. I don't see them as sending out fighters and terrorists uh, as much, nearly as much as, as ISIS does. Um, and we... We can't even fathom what what our enemy wants to do to us. Um, you know, we see some we see some terrorist attacks, and you say, "Wow, that's terrible." I'm glad that wasn't in my city, but uh, some of these cities are getting pretty close to home now, and um, I think we got to take this terribly seriously. Right, man. In fact, well, we we see that the trend has changed significantly. It used to be people wanted to do big, high profile attacks in. New York or Washington or Los Angeles, and it's now shifted to people are basically attacking where they live. Right. So we see attacks all over the country, and we see terrorists basically attacking in the part of the world that they live in against the easiest targets they can find, as opposed to going to New York or Washington or to a military base or something like that. So I think it is a significant threat. What's interesting about the North Korean threat is a part of that we we don't talk about, which is, in many ways, the North Korean and Iranian missile and nuclear programs are one program. They significantly share technology and scientists back and forth. So even though Iran technically, people say, isn't working on a nuclear weapon, as long as North Korea is and as long as North Korea and Iran freely share, essentially Iran is continuing to develop a nuclear weapon. That's a good point. So the, the Pentagon actually has a term for this, they, when they say, you know, it's the Pentagon, what keeps you up at night? And they call it four plus one. 
So what are the four countries of real concern? North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia. You know, varying degrees of seriousness of threat, but those are the four you worry about. And then the plus one is the transnational terrorist threat of ISIS and al-Qaeda. What's interesting to me is when you say, you know, is, is the world safer for America? None of those threats of themselves rise to the, the danger of the, the Soviet Union that we faced during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. But if you add all of them up and all the geography that they cover, that's a pretty substantial threat. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, good point. And, you know, and, and when you look at what we're doing, you know, we have, we have less than half the military we had during the Cold War. Proportionally, as a percentage of GDP, we, we spend far less than half of what we spent during the Cold War. And when you look politically and economically what we do around the world, we're not nearly as, as, as forward-leaning as we were, say, eight, ten years ago. And uh, so you could argue that we we were really kind of punching below our weight, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was it was time for a shift in foreign policy. I mean, again, not, again, not a partisan comment, but the the strategy of the last administration was to disengage, which was you know let's just figure out what'll make Russia happy and China happy and North Korea happy and Iran happy and give them what they want, right? Leave them alone, and then we can disengage, and the world will just kind of sail along. Well, that that didn't work. I mean, I think by every every metric. Every measure that's that's credible, people will say are worse off the way years ago. And, and it's not that the United States is the world's sheriff or the world's policeman or the world's anything, but we are a global power with global interests. And if our and where our interests are threatened, if we don't defend them or or demonstrate the willingness to protect them, people are going to take advantage of that. And so I think it was time for a shift in foreign policy, like we're seeing in yeah. North Korea and. Uh, today in, in the Middle East, where it's not about, we can't do what we did the last eight years, which is just say we're going to leave from behind, you know, pick up our stuff and go home. It, it made no sense to do what we did really under the Bush administration, which was, okay, let's let's use the, the attack of, you know, 9-11 as, as the momentum to just go out and kind of fix all these problems, um, because a lot of these problems are unfixable. Right. And instead, I think what we have is, is a different course that says, which I kind of call persistent presence, which is let's go forth in the world where our vital interests are really at risk, right? We want peace and stability in Europe and the Middle East and Asia and say, look, you know, we're going to stick around the neighborhood and look after our interests. doesn't mean we're going to be doing regime change and invading people, but it also doesn't mean we're going to be walking away from our friends and allies. And so I think it's a sensible, responsible course. And again, when we send ships and planes to Asia, we're not saying we're ready to start a war with North Korea. We're saying we're willing to defend our interests. When we fire cruise missiles at Assad, we're not saying, you know, tomorrow we're going to be marching to Damascus. What we're saying is, look, we're trying to defeat ISIS and al-Qaeda in the Middle East, bring stability to this region, and you're doing stuff that's making things worse. Stop it. Yes. Um, and sometimes you have to tell people, stop it with a little force. So <laughs> I actually feel good about what we're doing on foreign policy so far. Good. I'm glad to hear that because you're certainly in the know. Is there any area that uh, if you had the opportunity to advise uh, the current administration uh, moving ahead, going forward, is there any particular advice that you that's not confidential that you might be willing to share and, and would like to share with them? Well, you know, I think the administration kind of gets what they need to do in the Middle East. Uh, I think they understand that they need to have a, a stronger face towards China. Uh, that they have to, 
you know, demonstrate real resolve with North Korea. I think they've got that. I think Russia is an interesting case. I, mean, I think Russia is a troublemaker. It's a problem. Putin is not 10 feet tall. Russia has many strategic disadvantages. They, they've really tried to take opportunity of weakness, mm-hmm. and that's what's made them made them difficult, right? Um, so if you run down the, the list of places where the Russians can kind of make trouble and, and destabilize things, um, they actually have fairly limited space. I mean, Ukraine's pretty much frozen conflict. They've meddled a lot in the ball in the in the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. But they've been so antagonistic in that part of the world that they've attracted so much attention from NATO that there, there's real pushback there. There's mm-hmm. deployments and they're sending F thirty five combat aircraft and, and so they've kind of by being so overt, they've kind of created a wall for themselves. Yes. Um they they really don't have much place to go in Syria. Um there's really uh, I mean, they can defend Assad and Damascus, but they're, they they can't really expand much into the Middle East. Um, they meddle in Libya, but they can't really do much there. Um, Georgia is a frozen conflict. There's only one part of Europe where the Russians, I think, have an opportunity and motive and, and, and are doing some meddling. I think we have to pay attention to, and that's the Balkans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Balkans was in violence in the 90s. It kind of quieted down a bit. The Russians have been meddling in there, and there are some, some pretty... Uh, um, difficult situations, Bosnia-Herzegovina, you know, uh, tension between uh, Serbia and Kosovo, uh, Macedonia. I don't think it doesn't require an enormous amount of American attention. It doesn't require, you know, deploying, US, sending in the 82nd Airborne Division. But I think it is an area where the United States, along with Europe, needs to invest some attention to just put up another roadblock. Mm-hmm. Putin, and uh, so that's an area where I would like to see the United States be a bit more proactive. Yeah, that's a good point. We've got maybe two minutes left. Uh, you're talking with uh, families and young people and uh, a lot of older folks today on this program. Um, any comments in the last couple minutes remaining on uh, personal preparation for our families, uh, how to not be surprised yeah. <laughs> as things develop? Well, you know, funny you should say that. So I actually... I wrote a book. It's it's an elect- e-book, electronic book. It's at Amazon. It's on Amazon.com. It's called Surviving the End, which I know sounds a little dire, but it was actually written for everyday Americans to talk about what can we do in our personal lives to make ourselves and our family safer. And so I go through the big horrifying things like nuclear attack and you know, cyber attacks and stuff sure. like that. But but one of the messages of the book is it matters as much who you are as opposed to what you do. Everybody thinks that surviving disasters and dealing with difficult situations is about stockpiling freeze-dried chicken or something, yeah. but it's not. The, the number one indicators of whether people are resilient in disasters are um, faith. People that are part of a faith-based community are more resilient. Yes. Uh, families families actually make are much more resilient, much stronger. Um, education, people who aren't stupid, Tend yeah. to, to actually do better. I'm not talking about a PhD. I'm talking about people that have a solid, you know, basic education. Um, uh, health. If you're physically fit, and uh, you're much, you're much better off to survive a disaster. I tell a story in there about the guy that was r- running down the the World Trade Center, and he came across a very heavy set guy who had bad knees, who couldn't walk. And he said, okay, you sit here, I'll run down and get some help for you. Yeah. And he, when he got to the bottom of the building, the building collapsed, and so that, that guy was obviously killed. But he died because he was overweight. 
Yeah. And and so it's just kind of basic good advice for 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 us, you know, not, you know, mayors and and survivalists, but, you know, for just people that are just trying to live their lives. And it's called Surviving the End. It's on Amazon.com. It's like a couple of bucks. And uh kind of tells you everything you need to know. Oh, so that's great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's great. So the name of it is Surviving the End. Well, today we've been talking with James Carafano, and he's from the Heritage Foundation, um, very much in touch with uh, national security, foreign policy challenges, and James, if uh, one of our listeners would like to visit you on the web or whatever, uh, what's the address they could go to? So just go to heritage.org, heritage.org. It's a, I'm very proud of Heritage. All our stuff's very transparent. All our stuff's on the website, foreign policy, domestic issues, pretty much everything you could possibly imagine, but heritage.org. What I really enjoy as a broadcaster is that um, there's a wealth, just a wealth of you guys and gals out there who are experts in their each of their fields. So uh, we're, we're thankful for your organization. James, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, let's do it again. Thanks for having me. You bet. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.